This is Issues in Perspective with Dr. Jim Ekman, President of Grace University. Issues in Perspective provides a weekly overview of news that pertains to your Christian life and is designed to help you discern and interpret issues that affect you in light of God's truth. Here is Dr. Jem Ekman to help you think biblically about these issues. Welcome and thank you for being with me today on our program Issues in Perspective. In our first perspective on the program today, as you might expect, I want to address the debt ceiling crisis. As we are taping this, the Congress and the President have in effect approved a last-minute agreement on raising the debt ceiling of the United States in exchange, among other things, for reduction in future spending of the United States. He, he, the president, has signed this, and it is now law. There is not going to be a default of the United States government, but the ramifications of this are quite profound. And so I want to address this in this particular part in this perspective and issues in perspective as we address all of these today. It's apparently, as best as I can understand it, a complicated piece of legislation, one which will be in the days to come analyzed in scrutinizing detail. So in this perspective, I hope to provide some important background and analysis concerning this crisis. First of all, some historical analysis. The debt limit, or debt ceiling, is the amount of money the United States is permitted to borrow and is a commitment that the United States has already made. That is, budget bills already passed by Congress, Social Security checks promised to retirees, payments due to private companies with federal contracts, interest on the national debt, which is always in the form of bonds, etc., Washington has long spent more money than it takes in and plans always to make up the difference by borrowing money. Increasing this debt ceiling is mandatory for the United States government to pay its existing obligations. These are not new obligations. In short, the debt of the United States reflects previously enacted tax and spending policies of the United States Congress. Now, over the years, raising the debt ceiling has always been somewhat controversial, but never like this. It's interesting and somewhat instructive to me that when President Obama was in the United States Senate, for example, he voted against raising the debt ceiling during the presidency of George W. Bush. But that was for probably political reasons. He's on the other side of that table now, and he got what he wanted, albeit not what exactly in detail he wanted. We will not default, but the effects of this yet remain to be seen. A second comment historically. This debt ceiling system that we just went through, where Congress must approve an increase in the national debt, goes back to World War I, when Congress first placed a limit on the federal debt, in part to allow the Treasury Department of the United States government to issue liberty bonds to help pay for the First World War. It was to eliminate the need for Congress to approve each issuance of new bonds by the Treasury. And it made a lot of sense. It wasn't just perfunctory. It was to make, in effect, a streamlined way of government borrowing during a crisis, in this case, World War I. 
Over the years, this ceiling has been raised to its current level of $14.3 trillion from roughly $40 billion at the beginning of World War II. So this leads to a third historical question. How did the United States get to a $14.3 trillion debt? Before President Reagan came into office in the early 1980s, the total debt from wars and economic downturns of the United States was about $1 trillion. During Reagan's presidency, the debt was increased by another $1.9 trillion. During the presidencies of both President George H.W. Bush and Bill Clinton, each one added an additional $1.5 trillion. But it was the presidency of George W. Bush, 2001 to 2009, that added $6.1 trillion to the national debt by far the largest of any president in American history. And that, of course, was due to his tax cuts, the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, the economic downturn as a result of the 2001 terrorist attack, and then the financial catastrophe that began in 2011 and extended through the remaining years of his presidency. President Obama, in his little over two years in office, has already added an additional $2.4 trillion to the debt. So in just the last decade alone, the last 10 years, the debt of the United States has swelled by over $8.5 trillion. We have never seen anything like this in the history of our republic. Well, that leads to a fourth question historically. Who holds this $14.3 trillion debt? I'm going to itemize this. It's a bit technical, but I think it's important and instructive for us to understand this. First of all, the United States public holds $3.6 trillion of the $14.3. So it be individuals who buy savings bonds and treasury notes and certificates and all that thing as well as corporations and banks and pension and mutual funds. Nations, China holds $1.2 trillion of debt, Japan about $0.9 trillion, Britain $0.3 trillion, and in other nations another $2.1 trillion. The United States government itself holds part of its own debt. Now let me explain that. The Federal Reserve System, as collateral for U.S. currency and as a store of liquidity for emergency funds, holds $1.6 trillion of debt. The Social Security Trust Fund, which is really, in effect, surpluses generated by the Social Security tax that every employee pays that goes into this trust fund, has purchased U.S. government bonds to the total of $2.7 trillion dollars. Then other government trust funds hold an additional $1.9 trillion. So that's kind of an amazing thought as you really contemplate it, that the United States government, in terms of the Social Security Trust Fund and other government trust funds, hold almost $5 trillion of our debt. The rest is held by individual countries and then individual people and corporations and pension and mutual funds. One final comment, giving this historical and factual perspective. 
The United States has not always operated with this much debt, and that's obvious. After World War II, in which the United States did accumulate debt to fight the war, the U.S. debt remained stable for over 25 years. At the end of World War II, 1946, the debt was $242 billion. By 1970, it was $283 billion. So you can see that's fairly flat and fairly stable. But the debt has increased since then under every president, with the largest by far being under George W. Bush, 2001 to 2009. He cut taxes, fought two wars, and added the drug benefit program to Medicare without adding any revenue to pay for it. He made it clear that it would be funded by debt. As this debt has grown, so have interest payments. In 2003, the government paid $150 billion annually in interest payments. This year that we are currently in, this fiscal year, it's estimated that interest cost will be over $200 billion. Now, these interest payments are taking up more federal spending than federal outlays on education, transportation, and housing combined. Nonetheless, low interest rates have helped keep the interest payments lower than expected. But as the economy recovers, which we all want it to do, and then subsequently as interest rates go up, so will the cost to the United States government of its debt. So that $200 billion figure for this fiscal year will unquestionably increase. Now this leads me to a second comment, which is a much more macro kind of analysis and puts this in the larger perspective of what's happening throughout the world. As you undoubtedly understand, the United States is not alone in this debt crisis. It is part of every major developed nation and represents the demise of the old order of things. Let me explain. Constructed after World War II, this old order, economist Robert Samuelson argues, rested on three pillars. Pillar one, the welfare state. Pillar two, a strong faith in economic growth. And pillar three, an expansion of global trade and finance. All three of these were to be beneficial for everyone in the country, in the region, and in fact in the world. But today, in 2011, all three of these pillars are wobbling. The welfare state is the most obvious. With aging populations, government spending as a part of GDP is becoming unsustainable. In addition, strong economic growth, which could help all developed nations afford their welfare states, is a mirage. Conventional policy approaches to grow the economies of the developed world are failing. In the United States, the Federal Reserve, for example, has held interest rates artificially low for now well over two years, going on three years. But it has not helped. Hence, budget deficits are high and growing. Fear of default on debt among developed nations is real, and one only looks, needs to look at Greece and Portugal and Ireland, for example, and until just a few days ago, even the United States, where there was talk of the United States defaulting, its credit rating being reduced, and so on. 
The recent debt ceiling crisis in the United States is a further symptom of this problem, as I have argued in this program. Austerity, out of necessity, is the pattern in the developed world. England, the United States, most of the Western European countries and the Southern European countries are all adopting policies of austerity because they must. They simply are not taking in enough revenue to pay the demands of the welfare state, let alone stimulate any kind of economic recovery and growth. And when one looks at a couple of other things that are happening worldwide, specifically China, we see China frustrating the possibility of worldwide economic expansion by keeping its currency artificially low as a means of subsidizing its exports and sustaining its large trade surpluses. Hence, the foundation of the global trading system is at risk. And it would seem, therefore, that the old order, the pillars again, the welfare state, economic growth, expansion of worldwide trade, are all in trouble. They're all wobbling. And in some parts of the world, again, one thinks of Southern Europe, they're virtually collapsing. What will replace this old order? At this point, no one knows. But we are perhaps crossing one of those massively important thresholds in human history. I'd like to focus on a couple of other attendant issues related to this debt crisis that go beyond the macro level and go beyond the United States-specific problems. The entire debt ceiling crisis boils down to a disagreement, in my judgment, about the role of the United States government in our lives and in our economy. As the columnist Charles Krauthammer has argued, as a nation, we are in the midst of an enormous debate on the size and reach of government, the future of our welfare state, and the nature of the social contract between citizens of this republic and the republic itself. There are two visions for the United States. One, which is by and large the vision of the Democratic Party, especially the left wing of the party, is to create a social democratic nation in the United States, patterned somewhat after Western Europe. The other, which is a part of how the Tea Party looks at things, as well as conservative Republicans, and just generally politically and ideologically conservative people, a position of limited government. Now, they are two extremes, and they are opposites. But in many ways, it's a debate concerning these two visions of the United States, limited, restricted government or expansive social democracy to create one in the United States. This reality of two competing visions of America has informed every major issue since President Obama was inaugurated. The stimulus package, the auto bailouts, health care legislation, the financial regulation that was passed last summer, and now deficit spending and the debt ceiling. This debt ceiling crisis, which was just averted, manifests this divide. These two visions for America are in competition, and the definitive popular verdict has yet to be rendered. rendered. Presumably, the 2012 presidential and congressional elections will do this.
But I'm not certain that the 2012 presidential congressional elections will be that definitive. In the remaining months of President Obama's first administration, he faces two massive challenges, jobs and debt. He tried the typical Keynesian solution, the stimulus package, that resulted in a stagnant economy and a staggering debt burden. The American public will hold him accountable for this, but the future of the United States depends on how the public processes these two competing visions. At this point, as I stated, it's uncertain which one of these visions will win out. Finally, in this large discussion about this debt ceiling crisis and all of its attended tentacles, a thought about the tone of our national dialogue. The language of dialogue in America right now is poisonous and filled with vituperation. There is little room for kindness or compassion. As a nation, we do not seek to understand those with whom we disagree. It seems impossible to have a civil or reasoned discussion about anything in our national debates. The discussion over the debt ceiling, for example, was so intense and so fixed that no middle ground seemed possible or feasible. Any kind of compromise was not discernible until the nation was at the brink of disaster. This kind of rigidness extends to discussion about social policy as well. What Juan Williams calls speech code informs national dialogue about all issues. He writes, no one is supposed to talk about family breakdown or the number of outer wedlock births in our nation. If we do, be prepared to be charged with airing dirty laundry and wreaking psychological damage on children of single women. Or consider this, to bluntly say that immigrants need to assimilate, to learn English, to be patriotic, to abide by U.S. standards of law, is to risk attack by one civil rights group or another for being insensitive to people who want to celebrate their ethnic roots. The Obama administration, another example, refuses to use the term terrorist for fear of offending Muslims who sympathize with the political goals of the terrorist. I have experienced this same reality that it's impossible to have a reasoned discussion about the ethics of human sexuality. There is no room for reasoned discussion, for example, about the ethical issues related to homosexuality or same-sex marriage. For much of our culture, the debate about same-sex issues is over. Try and have a reasoned discussion about this issue, and you will be called a bigot, a Nazi, or even worse. I have experienced this personally. For a democracy, free and honest public debate is a given. But this is no longer the case in our democracy. Politically correct speech governs dialogue. And there are now so many issues that we simply cannot discuss. Speech codes and political correctness drown out honest intellectual debate in America today. And in my judgment, that's neither healthy for our democracy nor for the future of our nation. And my only prayer is... May God have mercy upon us and help us. We are finding it impossible to have reasoned debate about almost anything in our democratic republic. It's hard to see that as a positive development. In our second and final perspective on the program today, I want to return to the Middle East and simply ask and try to answer one question. Why the Arab Spring? 
As is so often the case, history gives us increased understanding about events of our day. For that reason, I think it's helpful to explore how the generation of Arab dictators came to power in the Middle East and why today this Arab Spring, what they're calling these different protest movements from Tunisia all the way to Syria that are unfolding before our very eyes. Two brief comments. Since the collapse of the Ottoman Empire at the end of World War I, the old order of landowners and merchants that dominated the region after the British and French mandates ended after World War II. That order was replaced in the 1950s and 60s by a political and military class that assumed power in most of the Arab nations. Senior fellow at Stanford University's Hoover Institution, Faoud Jami writes, The officers and ideologues who came to rule in Egypt, Syria, Iraq, Libya, Algeria, and Yemen were men contemptuous of the free market and of economic freedom. They hailed from the underclass and had no regard for the sanctity of wealth or property. They came to level the economic order and put the merchant class and business into flight. This was true in Egypt, where the military class and their socialist advisors distrusted free trade in the market and were determined to rule without them. Other Arab nations followed. In Iraq, for example, Jews who had lived there for over 2,000 years were dispossessed and banished in 1950-51. They had mastered the retail trade. They were the most active people in the business of Baghdad, but they were driven out. So the Ba'ath Party in Iraq began to rule and control not only the country, but its oil wealth. And the epitome of this central planning and dictatorial rule was Saddam Hussein. In Libya, a deranged Muammar Gaddafi, after his coup in 69, demolished the private sector in 73, instituting what he called Islamic socialism. The unbelievably brutal dictatorship in Syria of Hafez al-Assad and now his son Bashar al-Assad followed a similar path of Egypt, Libya, and Iraq. Totalitarian power mixed with subsidies and economic redistribution explain the horrific grip on Syria by the Alawites, a religious sect to which the Assad clan belongs. A few years ago, the grand bargain I summarized about Egypt and Iraq and Syria and Libya began to unravel. The populations of these Arab lands began to swell, and it was impossible for these dictatorships to guarantee jobs for the young or the poorly educated. These nations began to experience the highest unemployment levels in history. As these regimes tried to reform, the public sector gave way to the private sector, but it was crony capitalism, where the children of these dictators ran the economy. Economic plunder and massive corruption followed. This plunder and this corruption is what broke Hosni Mubarak's rule in Egypt. The sad truth of the Arab and social and their economic development is that free market reforms and economic liberalization that remade East Asia and Latin America bypassed the Arab world. That is the greatest challenge of the Arab Spring we are seeing unfold. The marketplace has few, if any, Arab defenders. Will this Arab Spring, from Tunisia all the way to Syria, make the connection between political and economic liberty that has affected Asia and Latin America? As I am taping this, that connection is not being made. And when one adds the rigidness and authoritarian tendencies of Islam, it's difficult to be optimistic about the Arab lands. And here we see again the centrality of worldview and a proper understanding of human freedom 
gives us a clarity of understanding of what's happening in particular nations and regions. And that adds clarity to what we see happening in the Middle East in 2011. You've been listening to Issues in Perspective with Dr. Jim Ekman, President of Grace University. Issues in Perspective is a radio production of Grace University in Omaha, Nebraska. If you have any questions or comments, or you would like a written summary of today's program, write to Issues in Perspective, 1311 South 9th Street, Omaha, Nebraska, 68108. You can also view a transcript and listen online at issuesinperspective.com. Join us next week for Issues in Perspective with Dr. Jim Ekman. Issues in Perspective is a listener-supported program and ministry of Grace University. You can listen to this program as well as past programs on the web. Just log on to issuesinperspective.com and click on the Listen To button. You can also find the link to Dr. Ekman's website by logging on to this radio station's website and click on the Issues in Perspective banner ad. Issues in Perspective depends on listeners like you in order to broadcast on this station and other Christian radio stations across the country. Please send your tax-deductible donation to Issues in Perspective, P.O. Box 3251, Omaha, Nebraska, 68103. Your generous donation will help spread the Word of God and how it relates to culturally engaged Christians in today's world.